me pray for our time this morning, and then we'll, we'll get right into this. Lord, we thank you, God, that as we gather as your church, that you are so faithful to be with us, to teach us, to purify your bride, that you say you do that, Lord. We're your, you're your bride. I pray you'd make us one as your bride, and that you would, you would teach us and purify us through the scriptures, through as we confess our, our brokenness to you and, and cast our need upon you, as we sang in the first set of worship, Jesus, be the center. Be the center of everything we talk about today, all that we do. Be the center of it all today. And we want to be around Christ, gathered around Jesus. And so um, we open our hearts and our minds to you. And I submit all of my capacities to you and ask that you would anoint me. I desperately, Lord, need your help in preaching and teaching the scriptures. Gosh, what, a, what an insane thing to do in front of a lot of people. So be with me. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So last week, um, we started a, a series called Surviving San Francisco. And we're using this series as a launching pad into the, uh, the book of Revelation, a teaching series that will start in the book of Revelation next week. And we're going to do it basically staying around the seven churches of Revelation, the first few chapters of Revelation. But we'll dip into the latter scary, trippy parts of it, too, to explain what's going on, hopefully. Um, and why I wanted to start here is because, and here, here it is, I know that, that that title is a bit provocative. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, why did you use that title? Some are like, yes, that is exactly what I want to do. How do I survive this place? Here's why. This is what the title means. This city is amazing on so many levels. San Francisco is an amazing place to live, uh, to make a life here, to make a home here, to raise a family here, and living out what I believe, what we believe it means to follow Jesus here. I love living here. I'm, I feel called here. And I love this city. But it's also amazingly hard to live here on so many levels. San Francisco is a hard place to live as a human, not just as a follower of God, but as a human. And not just financially, we'll get, I mean, we all get that to some level, but it's hard to survive. This is where it's hard to survive, especially as a follower of God. It's hard to survive the seduction of this city. This city is seductive. This city woos you with its beautiful hills and like surrounding ocean and all this food and coffee and all the opulence and, the, and everything about the city. It seduces you. It woos you. You might still experience that even if you've lived here a long time. Certain parts of the city you drive through, you're experiencing a meal and you're like, this city is amazing. Now, you might be in love with this city like I am, but you might come to find out this is what I'm trying to keep us from. You might come, out, come to find out that you've been seduced by the city. And I think that is the great danger. It's to fall in love with the city so much that you become seduced by it. Seduced by the city's opulence and wealth and privilege. Seduced by the power it gives you or it feels like it gives you. So seduced by the city that you have no taste for the things of God or of righteousness or even of reality. Not the church, but like true reality. That you have no taste for those things anymore. Your taste buds are completely warped. And the seduction of the city has made you something that you never wanted to be. Revelation, the book of Revelation, will call this seductive power Babylon. It names it out, Babylon. Whose opulence is pictured as a city dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. Like the, the best clothes you can possibly wear. Glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls and... Another description in Babylon is that the people of earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. 
Babylon in Revelation is pictured as this seductress city that lures people in by her luxuries, her opulence, the wine of her adulteries. She is an evil empire. Um, in the world of the Hunger Games, she is the capital that lures you with opulence and wealth, right? I mean, that's what it is. Actually, that's part of your homework. Watch, read the books or watch the movie before we get into Revelation. Just, just do it. And you know what? Babylon can be any great city today. She could be San Francisco. And if we are to do anything in the city for good and faithfulness to God, we have to survive being seduced by the city. That's what surviving San Francisco is about. How do we keep from being seduced by this city? And last week we said that one of the keys to surviving this town and not being seduced by it is to have a heavenly hope. And that's what we talked about last week. To fix our hope on a city that has lasting foundations because this city does not, whose architect and builder is God. Now, my point last week was simply this. Abraham lived in a city that he was called to. I'm not talking bad about this city in the sense that I don't feel called to it or we don't feel called to it. If you live here, you're called to the city. This is where God has you. You're called here. And Abraham moved into a city he was called to, the promised land, but he never settled there. And many of us are called to San Francisco. We're called to the city, and we're called to love it, and we're called to serve it, but we're not called to settle here. We are not to think that this city has lasting foundations. It doesn't. We long to make, for God to make all things new. Today, for our second installment of this series, before we get into Revelation, I would like you to turn to Daniel 3, and part 2 is what we're calling No Other Gods. How do we make it in this city? How do we survive the opulence and the wealth and the, seduct the seductive power of this city? Is, he, I think it's, it's, it's modeled well here and uh, described well here in Daniel chapter 3. Have no other gods. Let me just read it to you. And I'm going to skip around a bit, so just follow along if you have a Bible. If not, it's on the screen, but just track with me. King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, by the way, Babylon has a long history, starting in Genesis chapter 11, going all the way to Revelation. Um, ba the Tower of Babel, Babylon, Horror Mystery Babylon and Revelation. So uh, Babylon has this, this, um, this, this long history and even future in the scriptures. And King Nebuchadnezzar was the king in Babylon. And they destroyed and ransacked Israel and Jerusalem and took all their best people and made them, um, all their best men, and made them eunuchs and taught them the ways of Babylon. And they were integrated into the life of Babylon to serve the king. And so Daniel and his three friends are what's highlighted here. Not so much Daniel, but the three friends. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and, 60, and 6 cubits wide um, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He summoned the satraps, the, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other uh, provincial leaders, provincial leaders or officials, to come to the dedication of the image that he has set up. So he's calling everyone in his service, which would have included Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of this giant band, horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipe and all kinds of music, when the band strikes up and the orchestra plays, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, some scholars believe that this furnace is the same one that they used to forge this idol. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the band... 
peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At, at this, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has ensued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the bands must fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship the gold image is to be thrown in the blazing furnace. Listen. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There are some Jews in your service. There are some Jews who are serving you in, in government official roles. Namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were, men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, this is a very unlike a tyrant king like this. He gives them another chance. Okay, now, when you hear the band, guys, listen, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, well, good. Okay, I don't know what happened before, but let's do this again. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And this is the key to the whole, actually the whole book of Daniel. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? This literally says, what God is there that is able to rescue you? If you do not bow down, what God is there that can rescue you from my hand? This is what Nebuchadnezzar said to them. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. This is probably one of the, I say this, I, 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 this is the best, guys. This is so good. Highlight this. Go to this often. This is what they say to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. There's no need to talk about this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up these guys and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them up. And these three men, firmly tied, notice, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet with amazement and asked his advisors, whoa, whoa, wait, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown in the fire? They're like, yeah, certainly, your majesty. He, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, stroll out of the fire. <laughs> and all the, the governors and the satraps and everyone, all the advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair of their heads singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The only thing the fire touched were like the things that were binding them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree 
<laughs> this is insane, okay? <laughs> Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Moshe be cut into pieces. And you think that they're kind of like, whoa, wait, can we calm down here? Can we, like, not go that far? But he's insane, okay? Be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into a pile of rubble, for there is no God that can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of God, everyone. That is so good. Okay. Now, I admit that this story is bizarre. Okay, it's a bit bizarre. On some level, there is a, a lot about the Bible. If you've ever read the Bible from cover to cover, there's a lot about the Bible that is bizarre. That's one of my favorite things about the scriptures. You find mystery in it. You find these strange stories in it. You find transcendence. You find truth. It all happens in the pages of the scriptures. But it would be good to remember for all of us what the Bible is for. Like what the Bible is even doing as it tells these narrative accounts. These sort of heroic, beautiful accounts of God saving, why are they in there? And why do we even, what is the Bible even trying to do with itself? So on one level, the Bible is telling a story. On one level, the Bible is telling a story of what God has done to redeem and save his people. So if you're taking notes, you need to write that down. On one level, the, the, the Bible is telling a story of what God has done to redeem us, to save us, out of his love and his grace. So the, the Bible isn't just a book. It's more of like a collection of stories. It's a library, if you will, of what God has done to redeem and to set the world right. So you have this beautiful symmetry in the Bible. You have a tree in the very beginning of the Bible and a tree at the end. You have a garden at the beginning of the Bible. You have a garden city at the end of the Bible. You have God walking with humanity at the beginning of the Bible. You finally have God walking with all humanity, all redeemed humanity at the end of the Bible. It has beautiful symmetry. So the Bible is first a book about God, who he is, and how he has redeemed and is redeeming people. It's telling that story of how God redeems. On another level, secondly, the Bible is inviting the people who God has rescued and saved into covenant relationship to become the light of the world or the light to the nations, to partner with this God to bring about shalom in the world. So it's about God and how he redeems, but it's also about what it looks like to follow this God in covenant faithfulness. What does it look like to follow God even though you might lose your life? And there are a lot of stories. There's even stories in the intertestament period between um, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, a book called First and Second Maccabees that recount people who had faith in God and didn't get saved out of a fiery furnace like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who went into the fiery furnace and died, but still died like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saying, even if we die, we will not worship other gods. So this is a story, the scriptures are a story of what it looks like, what it looks like to be invited into following this God. So what the Bible is doing is saying, this is who has saved us, and this is who has rescued us, and this is who has delivered us. And then on another level, it's saying this is what it looks like to live in relationship and faithfulness to this God who saved us, to bring about his peace, his shalom in the world. You guys with me? Okay, so with that in mind, I want you to look at the Ten Commandments really quick, because the Ten Commandments um, set up Daniel 3 remarkably. I mean, I don't think you can understand Daniel chapter 3 without understanding the Ten Commandments. Now, how do the Ten Commandments start? This is important. How do the Ten Commandments start? They don't start with what to do and what, with what not to do. That is a common misconception. The Ten Commandments don't start with this is what you're supposed to do. The Ten Commandments start with identity, with who we are. Listen, with who God is and who we are. This is how the Ten Commandments start. 
If you think the Bible is just commands of things, what to do and what not to do, actually it's this. Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first thing that we learn in the Ten Commandments is that God, this is who God is, he is the redeemer. He's the one who delivers us, rescues us from slavery. That is the, the, the easiest metaphor to trace throughout the scriptures. God is redeemer. And you were in slavery, you were in bondage in Egypt, and God, with his love, his compassion, his mercy, and his, his mighty hand and outstretched arm, he has saved you. And you are no longer slaves, you are free people. You are God's people, you are my people. That's how the Ten Commandments starts. And then it goes on to verse, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, commentators for years, for centuries, have said all other commandments hang on this commandment. This later development in Moses in Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. What it means to have no other gods before God is to love God exclusively. It's loyal love to God. We love God. We worship and serve only God. He is, we love him with all of our strength and all of our mind and all of our might. That's what it looks like. That's the first commandment. And then everything, all the other commandments like hang off that one. And so we're told in other commandments, just a couple of them, you shall remember the Sabbath. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And so on. Now, another way of reading the Ten Commandments is we are a people who... We are a people who. So, when you read the Ten Commandments, one way you can read that is like, we are a people who have been redeemed by God and are no longer slaves. We are a people who have no other gods but Yahweh. We are a people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. We are a people who remember the Sabbath. We are a people who do not commit adultery. We are a people because we belong to Yahweh. We are a people who do not murder. We are a people who do not steal. We are a people who. So the question, especially the question of Daniel, is how do you remain a people who have no other gods when you are forced to live and serve in a city that has many gods? How do you live in a city that has all these gods and say we are a people who worship God alone? What does that even look like? How do you remain a people who do not steal when the society you are a part of is run off of greed? How do you remain a people who do not covet when you live in a culture where the entire economy is dependent on citizens wanting more and more stuff and wanting what they don't have? I'm talking about us right now, by the way, if you want tracking. It's like I switched from them to us. How do you remain a people who do not commit adultery when the city we live in runs off sexual immorality like it's written in our city's history from 1849 till now? when we turn sexual immorality into an historic pastime? How do you remain a people who? How do you do that? How do you keep an identity that says, I am a follower of the Most High God? This is what the book of Daniel is all about. And it's why this book is in our Bibles and is scripture. How do you live in a pluralistic society, in a culture where you're integrated into its life and its economy and its justice system and its politics, but still remain faithful to God? How do you do that? This is what Daniel is about. This is, it shows us the God who rescues and redeems his people and even shows us what it looks like to be faithful to God no matter what. 
even at the threat of life, even at the threat of everything you hold dear. It's also about what it looks like to be at the highest levels of society and politics and still remain committed to God without compromise. This is what Daniel is about. So, I think the first thing that Daniel chapter 3 asks us today is this. With that in mind, that context, what does it look like to follow God, be faithful to Yahweh, to be faithful to God alone in a city, in a town where we, were, we are people that follow God in a, in a city that we are people who have many gods? How do you do that? The first thing I think Daniel 3 asks us today is have you found in this life, have you found in this life anything worth dying for? Have you found in this life anything worth dying for? Have you found in this life anything worth losing your reputation for? Anything worth losing your job for? Have you found in this life anything losing everything for? As Dr. Martin Luther King has famously said, if you haven't found something worth dying for, you aren't fit to be living. And I think we should start here. I mean, have you found something worth dying for? I'm being very serious here. All cliches aside. See, if you live for yourself, whether it's self-expression or self-fulfillment or self-actualization, you will do everything you can and everything in your power to protect your life and your comfort and your way of life. Because your life is all you have. And in the end, in the words of Jesus, you will lose your life. You will hang on to your life and you will lose your life. He says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and let lose his own, her own soul? So on one level, this text only makes sense if you're willing to ask yourselves the very hard questions of, what am I willing to die for? And if you're not willing to ask those questions, maybe you've already bowed down to a gold statue. One writer, one commentator in um, Daniel, gosh, a great commentator, he says this, and uh, two guys actually say this in their writing. It says, does the book of Daniel have any relevance for an aimless and practically non-religious majority of today who are looking for something more out of life than the satisfaction of material, psychological, and emotional needs? Does authenticity as a human being require, require at times a price of substantial risk, as in Daniel 1, or of mortal peril, as in Daniel 2, 3, and 6? Listen to this last sentence. Is it not a bit much to expect one to lose one's most precious possessions, including personal freedom and even life itself, in order to gain oneself as a person at the deepest level of one's reality and being? What, it's, what he's saying is, what these, these commentators are saying is, these three friends literally gave everything up because at the deepest level they knew the reality of their own being. I'm willing to give up everything because at the, at the core of who I am, I know who I am. I know who I am so much to my very identity because I know who I am. Because I know who I am, I am willing to face the flames. I am willing to face the sword. I am willing to face a bad reputation. I am willing to face whatever it takes because I know who I am. They knew, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew they belonged to God. That they belonged to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That that was their God and they were his people. They were distinctly Jewish. They were distinctly Jewish and they prayed. 
Daniel 6 talks about this. They prayed the Shema every single day, several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, one God to worship. And so when they were told, we need you to worship another God, they're going, no, that's not even a thing. I don't even have to talk about that. I have no, I have no reason to enter into dialogue with you because we are a people who do not worship other gods. It's just that simple because we're distinctly the people of God. I know who I am. And because I know who I am, I know what I can and cannot do. I know how my life is based on. So when they're told, if you don't bow, you're going to face the flames. It was not a thing to them. We are not the people who bow down to serve other gods. That's not who we are. That's not a part of who we are. That's not our identity. That's not who we are. And so when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar and he reminded them, again, what will happen? He's like, okay, guys, this is what's going to happen. The band's going to strike up and play, and just, just, just do the thing, guys. Just do the thing where you bow down. Now, they, could, they just said, listen, there's no need to dialogue. I'm not gonna, we're not going to enter in conversation. I mean, I, I don't know about you. If you're facing your death, you might want to talk them out of it in some way. They're like, okay, well, can we just talk about this real fast? And Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay, listen, guys, I'm not, I'm not asking you to not worship Yahweh. I'm just asking you guys to add my worship guide too. Like, just worship my God, and then you can worship your God too. And you can worship your God more than my God. Like, you can just bow down just one knee. How about I'll give you that? One knee. Just boom, down, and then you go right back in purity, ritual, all that stuff. And God, guys, God is using you in, in Babylon. Do you want to die? If you die, what, what good does that do? Your influence isn't here anymore. Don't die, guys. You see why they have no, they're like, listen, keep talking, whatever. We're not going to defend ourselves. We're not going to have a conversation about this. We know who we are, and the answer is no, we will not bow down. Look at verse 316 again. We have no need to defend ourselves. We, we don't have to enter into debate here. It's not hard for us. No dialogue, no convincing. Here's the thing. We know who we are, and we know the God we serve. Have your worst with us. Do whatever it takes. Now, a little bit of background. Like I told you, chapter 1 tells the story of how these friends, along with Daniel, were taken from their homes in Judah. And because they were the best and the brightest of Israel and brought to Babylon, they were placed in the king's service. And it says they taught them the language and the literature of Babylon. And they changed the way they dressed and they changed the way they looked and they changed the way they thought even on some level. And they took away their sexuality and made them eunuchs. And they made them dress like a Babylonian. And they educated them and they taught them how to navigate the politics and the culture of Babylon. They did all this stuff, yet... These young guys never lost who they were. You can take everything from me and change the way I dress and the way I talk and the way I interact with society. You can't change who I am. I am a follower of the Most High God. That's it. And at the very beginning of Daniel, they're brought in and they're told, we want you to eat all this food and it's not kosher. They're like, we just can't do that. We're sorry, we'll do everything you want us to do, but just, we're not going to eat non-kosher food. We've made a commitment to our God. We're, we're going to be vegetarians. And all the vegetarians are like, see? <laughs> like that's... And, the, and they were stronger. They were, they were stronger than they were having eat, eating the king's meat and the wine and stuff like that. They're like, we're not going to defile, defile ourselves in that way. This is not even an argument. Another commentator, one writer actually said this. Daniel is a Jew who is fully integrated into Babylonian society 
and who successfully portrays the potential for exilic life and influence through his service to various kings with whom he comes into contact. Listen to this. He and his companions impressively demonstrate the possibility of dual loyalties. They serve both king and country, yet without compromising their ultimate commitment of covenant purity and faithfulness to God. I am not, please hear, a lot of your, most of your professions, I'd say, are like, they can be bad, but they're kind of amoral. I mean, there's some that we know that's just wrong. But there's some of our professions that you're in politics, you're in this, in this city, you're working in different spheres of whatever you do. And what this chapter teaches us is that every follower of God throughout the centuries, wherever they may be found, whether they are under the oppressive regime of like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, which is the hottest place of Christian persecution right now, by the way, who is very similar, I think, to Nebuchadnezzar. Or, or you live in the United States and you're swept under the seductive power of the United States. It teaches us this. No matter where you live, you can have dual loyalties. You can live faithfully in our, in our city. We can live, live faithfully in San Francisco and live faithfully in the nations. And we can also live faithfully as followers of Jesus. And I truly believe that the best citizens of San Francisco are citizens of heaven. The best citizens of San Francisco are citizens of heaven. But what this text also teaches us is how collaboration with our city has limits. Collaboration with our city has limits. You, you need to write that down. Like, you need to write that down and remember that. Collaboration with our city has limits. We are a people, as followers of Jesus, we are a people who serve no other gods. But this was kind of silly because it's like gold statues. I mean, no one's bowing down to gold statues. I mean, that's just not happening. You're like, well, this is a fun story. But, like, if it was as obvious as gold statues, then yes, maybe. Um, A few years ago, uh, one of my favorite Stephen Colbert moments, and there are many. One of my favorite ones is when he and Jon Stewart presented at the Emmy Awards, like, a few years ago. And there was literally a huge gold statue behind them. The big Emmy. Have you, some of you guys probably remember this. And they walk out, and John Stewart says, hi, everyone. And this is how Stephen Colbert, in character, full character, how Colbert welcomes everyone. He says, good evening, godless sodomites. <laughs> to a room full of Hollywood elites. And they just laugh. They're like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I am. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, then, and then John Stewart's like, what are you doing, man? Like, you need to calm down. And then, you know, you can tell, like, Stephen Colbert's really kind of angry or wound up or whatever. He's like, I'm just trying to bring the truth here. We're in the belly of the beast. And, and they were presenting the word for reality television. And, um, <laughs> and Stephen Colbert talks about how reality television warps the minds of our children and weakens the resolve of our allies. And then everyone cheers. Like everyone's, everyone's like, yes, you're speaking the truth. And then they're going, we're, we're here to honor the achievement and best reality TV. And then Stephen Colbert ye- yells, by giving you a golden idol to worship. Bow to your God, Babylon. And everyone just like loses it. And it's, it's hilarious. It's so funny. And what makes, what makes it funny is that no one in the audience really believes they're worshiping a golden idol. No one does. That's, what, that's the joke. So why it works so well. It's like no one really, like, we're not really getting a golden statue. And there's not really a almost 90-foot golden statue behind me that we're all worshiping. That's not really what's happening here, but all comedy has truth in it. And it's funny because it's true. And the whole point of the joke, 
was that Stephen Colbert was mad because he didn't get his statue. He didn't win. He lost to Barry Manilow, and that's embarrassing to him. And it's really, really funny. You should look it up. And maybe the, and the whole, I think what I loved about this thing, and I watch it like every few months because it's so good, um, it's like we've all been seduced. We've all been seduced. Like, no, we don't, we don't worship this big, giant gold thing, but maybe we do. Maybe in some ways we've all been seduced by it, and maybe in some ways we've actually gone all the way back to Daniel 3, and we all are all worshiping a golden idol. How silly. I thought we were so progressive. I thought we've moved on beyond that, but no. We actually are not. I mean, what is an idol? What is a god? In Scripture, it's called a guidal, idol or gods. The gods, lowercase g. What, why do we even have to be concerned about idols and gods today? What is an idol? Well, um, I shared this almost a year ago. I'll probably share it every year. David Foster Wallace in his famous This Is Water speech says this. I, I, there's no other better way to say this. He says, um, there's actually no such thing as atheism. It's the speech he gave at Kenyon College. He says, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they were you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs, cliches, uh, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping that truth up in front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect and being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I would go a little further than DFW and say that those things we worship are not just idols, but gods. They're not just like empty idols. They're actually gods that have demonic forces of the reality of evil behind them. This is why worshiping false gods, whether they're little golden statues that we give away as awards, or these other things that David Foster Wallace mentioned, they have the power of demonic gods behind them. And when you might think you're Western and enlightened people that we don't believe in gods. Oh, there's spirituality everywhere and you know it. There's a power of gods. I, be, and, okay, so there's such thing as like wanting stuff. Okay, covetousness, consumerism. Yes, that's, in the, old, in the New Testament it was called the God of Artemis. Okay, so there's that. And it's an idol and it's a nothing, but it's something. When we enslave children in other countries so that we can have a certain brand of shoe on our feet and keep people in poverty so that we can have a certain phone in our pockets, that's not just an idol, that's evil and demonic. Gods have power. The gods have power. And you have been, you and I have been so seduced by Western enlightenment, consumerism, individualism, whatever you want to call it, to say that, no, we don't worship gods, we do, they're everywhere, they're in this room right now. And the choice will be, do you belong to the living God or not? The true God or not? Do you worship yourself or any of those things, your intellect, your beauty, and you think, well, they're just a thing and they get rid of, they're a power, they're a force, and they, 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 they annihilate you, they take you on. There's a, a scene in Acts where, where these demons attack and like beat up someone, that's what it feels like. The book of Daniel is published resistance literature. 
just like the book of Esther is, but Esther is a lot more subtle. Just like the book of Revelation is, Revelation is a lot more in your face, not so subtle. It's like what this, what this is doing, what Daniel is doing as published resistance literature, it's like Katniss holding three fingers in the air to the Capitol. It's like we, see I told you to watch this movie, you need to do it. We resist the Capitol. That's what, that's what, that's what Daniel is talking about. That's what Revelation is going to do. We resist the seductive power of the empire, of the capital. And how do we resist? Do we fight? We do not resist with guns and swords and blood and death. We fight with our worship. That's what it's saying here. We fight with our worship. Did you notice that Nebuchadnezzar never told the Jews to stop worshiping their God? He didn't say, okay, guys, I'm, I'm, you guys got to stop worshiping your God. That happens later. But in this chapter, you have to stop worshiping your God. He didn't say you, you have to stop worshiping Yahweh. He said, can you make room in your life to worship my God too? This is where I think, this is where, gosh, me, just me here, I am really scared when I approach this text because I'm like, no, God, you're, you're the Lord. And then I just make room for other things, make room for other gods. Let's look at this narrative one more time, just as we close. If you're, so Nebuchadnezzar stands before them, he says, if you do not worship, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they said, King, we have no need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. There's just so much confidence in God. We serve God. Verse 18 is, just let this sink deep. They said, we have confidence that God will save us from your hand because there is a God who can save us from your hand. His name is Yahweh. He can, but even, but even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not worship your gods. Even if God chooses. See, they had, what they had here, um, godly holiness was not subtle here. Like godly holiness was in their face. Godly holiness is what is the source of their troubles. They would not be in trouble if they didn't have holiness. Because they were holy, they were in trouble. And their response to the king is a mixture of both confidence and humility. Confidence and humility. Courage, or you can say courage and humility. Their faith was in God and not in what they thought God would do in God, period. They had assurance and trust that God would and could rescue them. However, they were not so arrogant as to be sure that they knew what God wanted to do. They trusted in God and they also included a trust in God to do what he wants to do. We trust in God, but we don't trust in God for an outcome. We trust in God, period. And if God and his wisdom chooses not to do the outcome that we think he's going to do, we're still not going to worship you. You see, you see that? But even if he doesn't deliver us, know that we're not going to bow. God was under no obligation to operate under what they thought he should or could do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had limited wisdom, so they approached the king humbly. They said, King, we have confidence that God can save us. And we have courage to stand before you. But you know what? Even if he does not, because he might not. He might burn up right now. We might die by fire. We're not going to worship. That blend of courage and humility is what I want for us, church. It's like courage in God and humility before God. Courage in the face of the city and humility also in the face of the city. And what they were saying was, we are going to serve God 
whether God conforms to our wisdom or not. We are going to serve God whether he conforms to our wisdom or not. We are going to serve God if God makes sense to us or not. You get that? I mean, you guys are smart people. And sometimes our biggest hang-up is like, God does things that do, don't make sense to me, and therefore I cannot follow him. And what you do is you shift all your trust into your own intellect and what you think is rational, which is pretty limited. And imagine what if you banked on yourself when you were 15 and what you believed at 15. Like when you're 50 or 60, you're probably going to do that now. Just think about it. This is not wise. God's ways are above our ways, period. I can't, I cannot explain that away. There are things that just sometimes don't make sense to us. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the face of losing their life, they're like, we are not going to bow down, even if God doesn't do and conform to our wisdom, even if God doesn't do what we think he should do. And we will fight with our worship. We will fight with our worship. And this is not about songs. This is fighting with, like, our whole lives before God is, like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Maybe it'd be good for you to go home and like think about this and meditate on this. Is that we would give our whole lives, our whole bodies as living sacrifices, as acts of worship. God chose to save them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, through the fire, not from the fire. I think that's a good lesson for us as well. You will go through it. And sometimes going through it is the best thing for you. When you stand in trust and faith in God and you go through it, that might be, you might be fired you might have this silly reputation of being a weird Jesus-free Christian. All those trials that you might go through, the only thing that the fire consumed was the things that bound them. Do you see that? That's a fun little lesson, huh? The only thing that, that was, was consumed were the things that was tying them up. And now we're free. Even if they died, they were free. A couple closing thoughts that I want to leave you with before we close. First is this text challenges us and invites us to demonstrate our distinct Christ-like character at work and at home and in social circles, no matter what the consequences. This text invites us to demonstrate our Christ-like character. When I was doing youth ministry for a lot of years, so you're going to make fun of me, but I don't care. Um, I read this text <laughs> and said, this is why you shouldn't listen to secular CDs, um, guys. Um, because they're playing music and they bowed down to music. So, so let's all burn our CDs, all our secular CDs. And we did. Um, it's kind of weird to think about it. I did that. Okay, so I, so I taught this text. I'm like, guys, look at They all worship by, by music. Like, secular music is the devil. Like, let's all bring our CDs tonight and burn them. And like, all the CD, and then we had like an environmentalist come up. Just like, I don't think this is really good for like the air. I'm like, no, man. It's sweet to the Lord. It's sweet to the Lord. <laughs> That really happened, I swear. No, I don't swear. But I'm, I'm serious, okay? Okay, so then I was, I've been thinking about that this week and going, gosh, man, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. But what I was also thinking <laughs> was that, if anything, yeah, there's a youth pastor thing to do, I get that. But what I was trying, I guess what I was trying to do if I was reflecting back was to, is to, to, to form young people, to teach people that can actually destroy the things that keep them from the character of Christ. It might have been a bit misguided, secular music, a very Christendom thing of me to do. I get that. But I'm like, I want you guys to realize that you guys can actually cut off the things that are keeping you from holiness. You should be able to cut off the things that are keeping you from Christ-like character. Cut off the things in your life. And that's 
kind of, I mean, I'm, we'll, we'll leave the secular CD burning thing aside and just maybe be more, a little bit more adult about it and say, are there things in your life that you need to cut off that you are a person that can say, I can get rid of this and count a loss for the sake of Christ because Jesus is so much better. The second thing is the text invites us to confess our attachment to Christ. Um, in the book of Acts, it says that the, the church were called, were called Christians. It was an adjective, not necessarily a noun. They weren't Christians, they were Christian. The church was full, first called Christian in Antioch. And this was a derogatory thing to be called a Christian, called Christian. It meant they were like little Christs. They were Christ, and it was a scandal to be associated with Christ because Christ was crucified and crushed by Rome. Like, your God was crushed by Rome? Like, really? Like, no, our God was crushed by Rome but rose from the dead three days later. They're like, yeah, whatever. This was a scandalous thing, and they were going around serving and loving, and I mean, there's so much first century literature around what the church was doing. And it became almost like a uh, derogatory thing. But I want you to know this, that you are Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a disciple, you are known as a Christian. That's who you are. You are a disciple. You are a follower. You are a Christian. That's who you are. And so your life should line up that way. And you should tell yourself that as you're going to work, that I am a follower of Jesus. And so there's things I say yes to, there's things I say no to, and there's no argument about it. It's like, just no, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. That makes no sense at all. That just does not, that's not compatible at all. Sorry. And what we learn is that God will honor a life lived this way, whether it's through life or through suffering and death. God will honor this life, and God will use this life like this, from the margins to contribute to his purposes in our city. So as we live this out, God will, God is faithful, and will use a life like this from the margins of society to serve his purposes in San Francisco and in the world. Let's pray.